Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the Fugazi catalog, from Fuga A to Fugazi. I'm your host, Ian James Wright. Joining me today to discuss And the Same from the 1989 Margin Walker EP is the founder and owner of Inner Ear Studios and Fugazi's longtime recording engineer, Don Zintara. Welcome to the show, Don. Hi. Hi, Ian. Hi. It's great to have you here because I just wanted to say for kids like me who owned every Fugazi album and just sat there sort of pouring over the liner notes and reading them again and again as they listened to the music, your name was always there. And even though maybe we didn't know anything about how a record gets made and what you did, we just sort of knew that name and had the sense of, oh, Don Zintara, he's the guy who makes it all happen. So it's really cool to be speaking to you. Thanks. I run a good PR department. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm just kidding, though, really. Um, yeah, because it's uh, it doesn't uh, most of the stuff that I've done was really serendipity. I mean, and talking and that's uh, referring to Fugazi or a lot of other bands, too. Yeah. So speaking of which, your relationship with Fugazi predates Fugazi itself by a good bit. Um, I mean, you worked on records mm-hmm. by Minor Threat, by Rites of Spring, Embrace, Probably some other relevant ones I'm forgetting here. Teen Idols. Do you have any particular memories of your first encounters with the guys uh, that that went on to be in the band and how those early relationships progressed? Well, let me give you a little bit of background um, about how I got to know them. Um, I had been, I'm going to skip to um, basically getting here in the Washington area in Alexandria, Virginia, Arlington, Virginia. And I was recording, or I wanted to record stuff. I'd always been interested in recording in tape recorders um, and fixing tape recorders and sort of jerry-rigging them so they could do sound on sound and all kinds of other stuff. And I had a stereo tape recorder and a little hi-fi set up. And I recorded some people. I recorded the band I was in. We did a demo tape. We did it uh, with on a stereo tape recorder. One track was voice and the rest was music. And then we mixed the voice in with the music and voila, we have a demo tape. <laughs> um, and so I had done things like that. And I actually recorded uh, a few people, uh, mostly solo artists like that. And then I actually got a four-track tape recorder. And I had some, let's say, inexpensive equipment, uh, inexpensive microphones, a mixer I had built myself, um, a compressor I had built myself, some other gear. I used the reverb from my twin reverb amp. Um, just everything was really, really probably the most inexpensive and the cheapest you can get. But I just took time and I really cared to get some good recordings as, as well as you could with that equipment. And I was, um, like I said, I was playing in bands at the time. I don't know if I mentioned that, but I, and I had to stop for a while and just do uh, recording uh, using the contacts that I knew. And one of the contacts was the guitar player from the band I was in. Uh, they were playing at a show at one of the taverns here in town. And um, there was another playing, uh, band playing with them, the Slicky Boys. And the Slicky Boys, uh, they asked me, hey, since you've got all your stuff here, I, I, I told my friend I was going to record them that night, since you got your stuff here, can you record us if you got some extra tape? And I did have extra tape, so 
I recorded them, and little did I know that they had um, a manager uh, called Skip Groff, who was the owner of Yesterday and Today Records out in Rockville, Maryland. Skip Groff had probably was the person in the area with, uh, he had his finger on the pulse of what was new in music. He really knew what was going on. And uh, he really, he came back with them to do the mixing for the, uh, for the record. And we mixed it and they said, you know, hey, let's do another project. And we, I guess we did another project on four track. Um, and Skip said, uh, you know, I, I have some bands that you might want to record. Um, I wasn't too picky at the time. I was just starting out and I didn't know too much out of my realm of music, which was mainly uh, rock and roll, folk rock at the time. And, but he, you know, knew a whole lot more than I did, especially as far as the upcoming acts. So he uh, basically said, I've got um, this band called the Teen Idols I'd like you to record. And uh, I said, well, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, a band to record, yeah. Um, you know, they got bass, drums, guitar. I know how to do that. Um, so they came, and um, it was uh, shocking, to say the least. It was a totally new music that I, at first, just couldn't understand. It was fast, it was loud, it was brash, it had lots of energy. Um, it seemed like they cared less about uh, uh, their instruments and how to use their instruments and more about getting that energetic uh, personality across in their songs. Uh, well, I recorded them and it turned out pretty good. And later on, I found out through Ian and, and Skip that they had uh, sort of been shoved off by a lot of the other studios in the area were, who kind of thought they were a joke. Um, and I didn't think they were at all. Uh, they, were, they, they just had this energy that was really contagious. And if I could use that word in this day and age... Uh, and so it was, you know, I don't know when is, when this is going to be broadcast, but, um, the, uh, they were just really, really good in that respect. And so he brought in some other bands and then one time called me up and said, Hey, I, I have this black punk band that you need to record, uh, Bad Brains. And as I later found out, uh, they, they were so fast and so loud and they just, exuded energy from every pore of their body that he was scared to bring them in himself. He just sort of gave him directions to my place and said, good luck, fellas. <laughs> and uh, so I recorded them and pretty much every other punk band in the city at the time. Um, through Skip, through uh, Ian, uh, Ian Mackay, who later went on to Minor Threat. We did, you know, all of Minor Threat stuff and the Rites of Spring and pretty much everybody on this court at the time. Um, so that was that was how I got into it and how I got to know a lot of these people. And that's how I got into knowing what punk rock was, which, you know, I would have never have guessed I would end it up here. This was something that uh, it was just pure coincidence. That's pretty wild for your first exposure to a band like that 
to be in the context of of you recording them. You know, for most of us, probably the first time we heard hardcore punk. I mean, maybe it was either on a, a CD or like at a at a show. Most likely, I feel like that's the first time I ever heard it. You just go to like a, a show that your friends are going to, and this is this thing is presented to you. And it's it's certainly confronting and abrasive, but you're like, well, you know, these guys are on stage. People are here to see them. It must be a thing. But for that first time to happen when they're coming to you and recording. <laughs> exactly. And strangely enough, uh, the way they were in the studio was exactly the way they were on stage or vice versa. Uh, you would get that same energy that because there's no way of faking it. There's no way of dubbing stuff on. There's no way of putting things in there. Most of them wanted to record live just as it is. Um, arrangements changed sometimes, so it had to be live. And what they played was, uh, was, was just unique every time they played it. So it, uh, it had this uh, really, really fresh, energetic quality to it. Yeah, that brings me to something I was wondering about. So is there... Is there any way that you would approach recording Fugazi that is kind of specific to those guys? Or like, you know, to put it another way, if, if Fugazi were to like record with another engineer who came to you for advice, what would you tell him or her to be like, you know, look, here's how you're going to get the best out of these guys? Um, well, they, of course, they changed over time. Um, when they started, a good deal was it, of it was live. Um, towards the end... Um, there were many more overdubs and things added in, but they were getting more into production too. I mean, things change over time, song arrangements and song writing changes over time. And a lot of songs that were punk, uh, early on, uh, later on are more finished and, uh, I hate to use the word polished, but that's the way they were in terms of production qualities um, background vocals, overdubs for guitars, things like that. Even in, we were, uh, I was mixing Embrace with uh, Ian about a month ago, and um, we figured we could do a better job of mixing than the actual Embrace record. So we, uh, um, I can't remember what, exactly what song we are doing, but after we finished mixing, we were pretty proud of ourselves. It sounded really pretty good. Then we put on the original song. And the original song had a backwards guitar that Mike Hampton uh, put on there during the mixing process because the eight tracks were used up, so he had no other place to put it. So he played it just live, uh, probably into a tape recorder, and they played the tape backwards while they were mixing. And it's just that's the way things were done. They were it was more. They were getting more into production. They're getting more into thinking about the songs coming across to their listeners. Um, so there was really, there's an evolution for sure in it. And Fugazi was no uh, exception at all to this. They followed it along right through. I mean, you could listen to some of their later songs, which are um, had more uh, harmonies and had more, there was more harmonic content in both the music and, and the lyrics than some of their early songs. So they evolved just like any other musical group did. Yeah, so I guess I guess you just have to meet them 
sort of where they are creatively at any given time because um, mm-hmm. it's always going to be something different. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. The answer to your question, to, you know, as far as what I would tell a recording engineer that how how to record them, um, man, I you know I would just say listen to what they got, listen to the songs, and I do this for pretty much every band. I've done this for Fugazi. I've done this for bands that I've recorded coming through the studio. I want to hear their songs, and then see if we could bring out the best we can from their songs. Uh, they're going to play it. They're going to put their own twist on it for sure. I'm going to give it a little twist as far as putting a mic in this position or that position. And then we're going to talk about, hey, does this bring it out better than this? Or does this make it sound the way you feel it should sound in your head? You know, all that stuff where basically we want to present to the people who are listening uh, the most valid uh, version of their song. Did you teach yourself all this, uh, all your recording techniques? Did you have any early mentors or anything like that, or was this all <laughs> autodidacticism? Uh, okay, you're going to push me back into my uh, biography. <laughs> uh, which, <laughs> well, if you which, want, uh, up to you. Um, yeah, uh, how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, well, here's here's uh, what happened. Basically, I started out. Um, we're talking about nine years old. Um, my parents felt I was kind of a little bit like a, a little bit wild and I needed some kind of discipline uh, as far as a musical instrument to learn. So, you know, there's the usual piano and violin, but back then I was in a Polish community in Rochester, New York. And uh, at the time, uh, the instruments that were available for a Polish community were accordion. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's it. And luckily, it was just at the time where Elvis Presley was coming onto the scene. And so when we went down to the music store, um, the guy who was in charge said, hey, you know, uh, we could either teach him accordion or guitar. And even at nine years old, you know, hey, I knew more chicks like guitar players than accordion players. So I went with the guitar. Stands to reason. <laughs> so I studied yeah. I studied it for a few years. Then I put it down and a friend of mine came over and uh, he helped me get back into it again uh, by basically teaching me to play by ear. I, you know, learn, uh, you know, to read it off paper and I basically knew music theory and stuff like that. But that kind of bored me in a way. Uh, but then I got back into it, and it was far more exciting. And then I started getting into bands. And I didn't have a whole lot of money at the time. So what we did was I got a cheap electric guitar. I remember we went to New York City one time, and um, it was at Manny's Music. Uh, I don't think it's still there, but I bought a guitar for about 45 bucks that I had saved up. But it had nothing to play it into so we would uh, raid trash day uh, around our neighborhood. And that was, this was a time where the big Magnavox stereos were being used a lot. And of course they would break and they'd just uh, throw them out in the trash. So we would get these amplifiers and uh, try to fix them up and make them into guitar amplifiers. And we would take the boxes, the speaker boxes, and see if we could somehow cobble together actual guitar speakers from these speaker boxes. So we would have a really kind of motley assortment of stuff, but it, it got me into 
working with electronics. And luckily, I had some friends who were really, really good in it. So I had uh, I had sort of gotten the electronic bug, and it was it was quite interesting. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, quite frankly. I enjoyed working with enjoyed working with a soldering iron and putting stuff together. And voila! All of a sudden, man, you've got a guitar amplifier. Um, didn't sound really good and it wasn't quite loud, but it was a guitar amplifier. Who cares? Um, so uh, further on, I go into college, into Syracuse University, into art school there. Um, don't ask me why I went to art school, but you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And at the end of Syracuse, how old are you, Ian? Um, I believe I'm 37. I'm at the age where okay. I, I keep forgetting okay. if I'm 37, 38. <laughs> I was born in 1982, uh, at any event. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, the reason I ask, because in 1969, uh, late in 1969, it may have been into 1970, uh, there was a thing called the draft lottery for the Vietnam War. Sure. Um, for the Army. And basically, they had deferments up to that point. And at some point, I guess the, the great powers that be said, okay, this isn't too equal. We're going to make it really, really egalitarian, and we're going to just kind of pull uh, uh, birth dates out of a drum and, you know, get uh, pick the people who are going to be first picked for going into the army. And no deferments are going to be uh, allowed unless you had like a missing leg or a missing arm or blind or something like that. And... Um, so I was picked number one for that thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was definitely going to go in. Yeah. Um, I basically I figured, have heard the same story from my dad, but with the uh, the opposite result, he got lucky. Really? Well, he, he was lucky. He was definitely because people were getting killed in Vietnam all the time. Um, so, But I uh, applied for graduate school at West Virginia University in Morgantown, West Virginia. Great place. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's really wonderful. I don't and think I, I have, avoid... but uh, Joni Mitchell wrote a song about it, right? Really? I think she did, yeah. Yeah, yeah she so, did. got to be something to it. Yeah, it's a great place and a great university, West Virginia University. So I uh, um, applied, and I went there in uh, late August, and they sent me uh, the uh, where I needed to go for a physical in Rochester, New York. And I told him, hey, I'm in Morgantown, West Virginia. Can you uh, change the, the place where I'm going to get the physical? So in their bureaucratic ways, they, um, they changed it to Morgantown, West Virginia. But by that time, it was Christmas, Christmas vacation. I said, hey, I'm in Rochester, New York. Can you change it to Rochester, New York? So they, the bureaucracy turned <laughs> a little bit and the wheels grinded and uh, they changed it to Rochester, New York, and um, they sent me the notice that I'm going to go to Rochester, New York. And I said, hey, I'm back in Morgantown, West Virginia. Can you change it around again? <laughs> well, this is uh, like a Br'er Rabbit folktale. You're, you're very it is, wily, it sir. Is. It is. It's exactly <laughs> like it. Exactly. So they changed it again uh, to Morgantown, West Virginia. And then, of course, at the end of the year, I came back to Rochester and I told them, hey, I'm not in Morgantown anywhere, I'm in Rochester, New York. Well, they got me there because I was going to be home for a few months. Um, so uh, I took the physical and uh, I happened to be pretty okay through it. So, uh, and really um, good for the Army in there. And, but I also noticed that they had uh, guaranteed training 
in a number of different fields. One of those fields was electronics. So I uh, went in and said, you know, I want to sign up for this guaranteed training in electronics. And they said, sure. So I signed on the dotted line and I went through basic training uh, in the fall, early fall, and then went to the place where there's going to be electronic training. It was in New Jersey, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, but it doesn't matter really. Um, and I waited and waited some more. And if you're in the army, you know that you wait and wait and wait. And I just waited there. And eventually they called me into the headquarters in the office and said, look, it just happens to be a time where there's a lot of people looking for this to get into this electronic school. We've got a lot of people here that want to do that. Um, we guaranteed you training in electronics, but the truth of it is, uh, once you get that training, you may be deployed into an area that is not even connected with the training. Like I could be a cook after that, or I could be driving a tank. Uh, they said, but you know, we have an option here. We, we need an artist, someone who could draw and paint in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, would you like to do that? And I thought about it. Um, being shot in Vietnam, driving a tank or cooking, or drawing pictures in Alexandria, Virginia. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't much of a choice. <laughs> so I ended up here in Alexandria, Virginia, where, where I've been all the time in the Washington area. Um, and I went to do drawings and paintings for them uh, here. And after a while, uh, long story short, or at least long story medium, I got out and um, um, basically from the army, I went into um, doing, uh, doing some picture framing at a place. And from there, I went to the National Gallery of Art um, in the prints and drawings department. And while I was there, I was in the National Gallery of Art for about 10 years, but five years into it, uh, they gave a tour around the place. And National Gallery of Art's a big building. I don't know if you've ever been here in Washington. Sure. I, huge... uh, yeah, I grew up going to museums in D.C. Yeah, it's a huge building. And there's lots of hidden rooms and areas and offices and all kinds of stuff. And as they're giving us a tour of the place, they're taking us through one of the areas that where they were building a recording studio and they had trouble connecting up uh, some wiring in the patch bay or something and i just happened to mention to him hey you know to get it going all you got to do is connect it up like this and i showed him and they basically said well um would you like to be the recording engineer here we don't have a recording engineer <laughs> So I jumped from prints and drawings into being a recording engineer at the National Gallery. And, and there I went out, and after that, I think about 1984 or 85 or so, I started uh, Inner Ear Studio and in my basement originally, and then moved into a, a commercial space in Arlington here. So my that, main takeaway from this is uh, is basically some of this, you know, 
electronics know-how and uh, expertise behind the Fugazi records is thanks to the good old United States Army. Yes. I never got trained in electronics, though. So I, I never actually got the training in electronics. I've never had any training in electronics. I don't know what the hell I'm doing in there. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I do know that if there's a lot of brightly colored lights and a lot of them are blinking, people will assume you know what you're doing. <laughs> the more LEDs, the better. The more LEDs, LEDs are wonderful for that because they're, <laughs> they just pop on and, oh, they're wonderful. I use them, I use them a lot. <laughs> so this is... basically that's, that's right. And so most of the training I've had is from experience, which has been a humbling thing, but I kind of enjoy that humbling thing because I've learned a lot from a lot of my clients. Sure. I've learned uh, what they want. I've learned to listen to them and find out what their needs are as far as recording and, and sound and how to get the right sounds. And, you know, I've made mistakes along the way, tons and tons of mistakes, but I've always tried to learn from those mistakes, figuring out that, hey, you know, I may not have the right answers, but I'm going to get the right answers, even if I have to, um, you know, uh, listen to somebody who who says that they have the right answer, and we'll see if, you know, we'll evaluate whether or not they have it or not, and we'll try it out, and if it works for me, and if it works for my clients, maybe I've got something there. Very much in the spirit of punk rock. Exactly. Appropriate. That's exactly, yeah, we fit in perfectly. I mean, uh, quite frankly, punk rock came along at a time when I had crappy equipment, let's, let's say inexpensive equipment. Sure. <laughs> let's say bargain basement equipment where you wouldn't normally want to record, but because the spirit was exactly that, they wanted something that had the energy and the excitement and they didn't want anything flashy and polished and gleaming, you know, chrome or anything like that. They wanted something that, you know, had safety pins and tattoos and all kinds of things sticking out. Well, I think that leads us into today's topic, which is the song And the Same, which was first released on the Margin Walker EP, which ironically, I guess, was the only Fugazi release that you didn't actually work on. Uh, but you did record the early demo of the song, which listeners can find on the first demo release available at discord.com. Uh, do you remember what it was like uh, cutting that first demo? A learning experience, too. Uh, because Fugazi, at the time, was probably more sophisticated than a lot of other punk rock uh, groups at the time. Remember the... Uh, um, the people from Minor Threat, uh, and, and this, you know, carries through with Ian, uh, were a little bit older. They had a couple years on some of the people that were growing up in that punk rock era. So, um, and there was a little bit of wisdom in there. There was a little more wisdom. And they, they knew a little bit more, and they uh, expected a little bit more. Um, so it was... It was an interesting time. It wasn't, uh, a lot of the groups wanted, basically, they want to, okay, get the mic set, and we're going to play. And after we finish playing, you got us right there. That's about it. You want it mixed? Okay, yeah, yeah, mix, mix, mixed. You know, I don't care what it sounds like. Mix, we got it down. But Fugazi took a little more time 
uh, getting things a little more settled and a little more the way they wanted it to hear. It really comes through because, you know, I was just earlier today listening to both the demo version and the, you know, the margin walker version. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it does seem like a very fully realized demo. Um, obviously, there are some differences, but uh, really the whole thing is there. The, the lyrics are there. The structure of the thing is there. They made some, you know, different choices in the end, such as, you know, you have Guy uh, with a, doing this sort of like low, very low in the mix monotone background vocal over all the verses um you know just stuff like that um mm -hmm. but it's all there in the demo it's just um there's a certain i guess a certain mentality that if if you're going to really uh be in music you have to have and i it's it's the kind of thing that's almost uh indescribable where you kind of know what you want and you know what's important to you and you know about the things that aren't too important to you, and you focus mainly on the things that are important to you, hmm. if that makes any sense. And that's what they had. So, so one thing immediately that jumps out to me is, yeah, right from the beginning, you had something that I think goes through Fugazi's history is, you know, Joe's distinctive bass lines. They're sort of, you know, looping repetitive. Yeah. This one I like mm -hmm. because, you know, it's the song is in 4-4, four, four, but there's something about Joe's bass line that gives it this really odd time feel, like it doesn't start where you'd expect the bass line to start. It sort of it sort of does this like false ramp up back to the back to the one. And mm -hmm. in addition to that, also Ian's vocal it doesn't map onto it in a way that's really easy to pin down. Like I was imagining if if a group of uh, if a band tried to cover this song, even a you know a group of people that really knew Fugazi well, I I, I just picture it. They'd be like, wait, where does the vocal come in? How do how do we get into this? It's <laughs> it, I never remember where it comes in. So it's 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 very tricky like that. Uh, and yeah. and a lot of times they did tricky stuff like that over just you know four four beats. Sure, it makes you listen to it more than once. <laughs> um, and I I also love. I was gonna say there's that classic great Fugazi guitar noise stuff happening in the beginning. Like it sounds like they've got that sort of wailing feedback happening. There's mm -hmm. pick scrapes on the strings. There's picking behind the nut. I think it's, there's like this tinkling weird high guitar stuff. Um, so that's, that's a big part of what you come to Fugazi for too. Yeah, I think, well, you know, they had their, uh, you know, they had a toolbox of things they used a lot. And you know, one of those was um, you have these noises and then Joe's line comes in under that after a little bit. And, um, you know, he, Joe has uh, some fantastic bass lines. And sometimes he uh, takes a bass line or a part of a bass line from something else and puts it together with a, another part of it and tries to fit it into a song. And it maybe doesn't quite fit. But he kind of likes it like that. <laughs> yeah, it's actually in this song itself. Um, I guess, where is it? I guess it's the part where there's, uh, th well, it goes along to the lyric, your way of everyone in the band sort of chugs along. Du -du 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 -du, the drums, the guitar, and, and Joe stops doing his looping bass line. He does the same thing dun -dun 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 -dun, and immediately falls right back into it. That's also like in a very tricky interlocking way um so that that's something else that i was like wait how does where does he pick it up how does it how does he get from there to there um, yeah. it's a very skillful guy 
It is, yeah, he's a phenomenal bass player. And you, you know, listen to it just once. You say, okay, he's a bass player and he's playing along quite nicely. But, oh man, it's, he, he's just, it's genius. It really is genius. And that could be, that could be said of all of them too, the way they, they t- attack their instruments and play them. Do you have a, um, you have a take on the lyrics to this song? No, <laughs> no, I, I'm, you know what? I'm not a lyric man. Even, even if you asked me that question right after I recorded it, the song and did the vocals for it. And you asked me, you know, um, what do those lyrics mean to you? Or what do they say to you? What, what's going on here? I couldn't tell you because I really, I'm not a lyrics person. I, I enjoy it. And sometimes I, I will sit back and listen to the music and just listen to the lyrics but mainly i will look how it fits in how the phrasing is what accents are put on it um what the words actually are is um is totally it's it comes secondary let me put it that way a big big secondary in the whole thing um and it's i don't want to go too far out of the fugazi realm but um I don't know if you remember, there's a, a band, Cream, that did a song called Badge mm-hmm. that has lyrics that are just totally, they just don't make any sense at all. <laughs> and what was going on was they just didn't care about what really the lyrics said. The music carried everything. The way they phrased it carried everything. The tune that the person who was singing uh, carried everything. And the words were just words and i'm not sure if that was going on in this song i you know i'm sure there was some thought behind it but i don't care i mean i enjoy it for the just for how it was put in how it was how he how he sung it and how he slipped in certain phrases and how he punched out certain words and things like that and he does that a, a lot and it comes across as being very powerful and i that's the part i enjoy i think um for me there are a lot of Fugazi songs, and this is one of them, that um, I have an idea what it's about partly, but it's like parts of it, uh, they, they kind of lose me. I'm not sure exactly what he's singing about. I think to me this song overall uh, seems to be one about privilege, basically, like of those classes and races in power, and just a song questioning how they got there and on what merits and how they maintain that power. Um, mm-hmm. so, some of the some of the lines I'm not exactly sure about, but I think it's interesting. You know, this is this is the song that starts out. Um, yes, I know this is politically correct, but it comes to you spiritually direct, which I, I, to me, that's always that's still the most memorable part of the song. Because partially because of there was always this perception of Ian MacKay and of Fugazi as, you know, quote unquote, politically correct. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe more so than other punk bands, which is. You know, it strikes me as strange sometimes because, you know, tons of punk bands were out there, you know, writing about leftist politics, you know, songs critical of war, critical of the police, etc. Um, and they didn't seem to get painted with the same brush. I guess maybe the difference to me is that, you know, Ian MacKay was also writing these, well, and, and, and Guy, uh, were writing these pro-choice, anti-rape anthems, stuff like that. So it hmm. seems to me that the whole politically correct label was more about how they would, you know, stick up for women and minorities. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right about that. Let me, 
One thing I do want to emphasize, if anything comes across, uh, this is the thing you should remember from all this, that they are, uh, they come across maybe on, on, on record and CD as a very, very serious band where they, they have certain beliefs and, you know, anyone who deviates from them is uh, not my friend or whatever. They're, they're probably the bunch more, most tolerant guys I know. And the things, even things that are uh, outside of their beliefs, um, you know, they, they take very, very lightly. I won't say uh, humor uh, with humor, but they take lightly. Uh, you know, if you want to, I've had many times where uh, I was with Ian in the, in the studio and, uh, you know, he is a vegan. And, you know, I'll, I like, I like cheese and crackers and he's gone down and he's, he's gotten me some cheese. He, you know, it's, it's not a big thing. They, they look at the big picture. They, they don't parse apart little things. Um, and they've got, and they've got a sense of humor. I mean, I've sat down, you know, with dinner with him and I've had, I've had glasses of wine or a beer or something. And they, 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 you know, they have their own beliefs and they know that their beliefs are their beliefs and they will abide by them. But you're not going to convince the entire world of that. You may, you may, uh, you know, you may believe a certain thing, but for God's sake, you can't proselytize your entire life. You can in song, but <laughs> then, then the song is finished. Well, yeah, he follows up that first thing, right? He says, I know this is politically correct, but it comes to you spiritually direct. Like, I think he wants to, I mean, undercut this notion of political correctness because, I mean, even as a notion, that whole thing is, you know, to my understanding, that political correctness started as a this sort of like ironic term among liberals to sort of poke fun at other liberals for like their attitudes of ideological purity. And of course, it was like quickly co-opted by conservatives as a you know a tool to attack liberals like um Mm -hmm. like these people think well they don't think they that they have this uh this scheme of correctness and you know they they don't think critically about it and it's uh, all their you know opinions are just you know being in lockstep and and uh but but this that's partially you know what this preamble to the song is about it's like yeah i know this just comes off as politically correct but uh you know this is actually what i think i'm i'm speaking from the heart here um so you know don't get it twisted uh uh take it seriously because i'm thinking about it seriously i i would absolutely agree with you and also i would have to add hey it's it's got a nice little rhyme to it <laughs> sure <laughs> that's that's the most important part Let's not forget that. That's the most, yeah, to an engineer that is. <laughs> it did always make me wonder too, listening to this song. There's, are you aware of the the song by the band's No Effects called Punk Guy? No. It's so it's this like, it's a funny song, right? It's mm-hmm. the whole song is about he's like is describing this the most punk guy in the world and like yeah. taking aspects of different like famous punk people. And, and like yeah, they're I was all gonna ask what that guy. really means. <laughs> it's well, so the first line of the song is crazier than Gigi, right? Gigi Allen, crazier than Gigi, mm-hmm. more PC than Ian, and so and it goes on to describe this like you know satirically this like super punk guy. Um, so I every time I hear the song, I always wonder is like, did, 
has Ian heard that song? I'm sure he has, but like, does he find it funny? Uh, so I'll have to. I think he would. I think he would find it funny. I'd like to. Um, if I ever get a chance to talk to him about that, I'll I'll definitely ask him. Yeah, yeah. He he is not politically correct in the way you use the term politically correct. He's he 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 adheres to that in his life, and that's just the way he lives. Period. It's not a matter of. I, you know, saying I believe this, it's a matter of just doing it. I mean, one thing that punks do is they do. They do things. They, they're an action-oriented thing where, uh, and, 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 you know, a lot of them tended to forget this, that, you know, you do what you want to do because you believe you want to do it, and that's it. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to rant at other people about not doing it or doing something else, just you do it. So yeah, as, as far as the rest of the song, you know, I, I, this is not a song that I could go line by line and, and give it, give my interpretation on. I, I just, there's too much that I'm not quite sure uh, what Ian's referring to, but I, I do have to give a shout out, like maybe my favorite line, right? If you have to carry a gun to keep your fragile seat at number one, um, that's that's a line that rattles around in my head, um, both for its literal and maybe metaphorical uh, possibilities. You know, I could be obviously talking about the armed forces, uh, the police, but I, I feel like it's um, it could be directed at kind of the the weaponry and the violence of the dirty tricks of uh, the political right to sort of silence the will of the people. You know, with the gerrymandering, voter suppression. And to like basically declaring that a democratic president isn't allowed to nominate a Supreme Court justice. So that that's like doing violence to the republic that you purport to serve, also that you can, you know, clutch it more money and power. Yeah. Um that's that's been my interpretation of late when I hear that line. I think uh you know, especially those guys, that those four guys, uh they are gentlemen. And the true meaning of gentleman is 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 kind of chivalrous in, in a lot of ways, where you you do not you do not you do not do anything against the weak or anyone who is smaller, uh, less strong, less powerful than you are. And they seem to have always sort of adhered to that. They're real gentlemen, and I think there's. You know, that can be said for uh, a lot of musicians and artists and, and politicians, too. And the opposite can be said for a lot of people, too. But we won't get into national politics at this point, will we? <laughs> well, we're certainly not going to solve gonna, anything is this here. Is be broadcast after <laughs> November? <laughs> uh, I, I have no uh, guarantees about the release schedule, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's, you know, they're, they're, they're just... Uh, they're just following their beliefs, basically. Right, and um, they they certainly always did it very well. Yeah, and they you know they they're telling I think the world what they are. Uh, they are certainly not admonishing you to follow them or to follow what they say. Uh, it's not like a, this is why I think that's right. So what do you think about that? Mm-hmm. It's 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 more like this is just who I am. Well, that brings us to um, a part of this show called Ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? 
which is always mm-hmm. very difficult. Um, but I like to ask my guests if you had to to give this song a rating from one to five stars purely within the context of the Fugazi catalog. If you can bring to mind mm-hmm. uh, all the songs by them that you know, um, where do you think this would land in terms of you know your favorites, uh, your your less than favorites? What would you rate this? Boy, that's a tough one. But I would hazard a three. I was thinking that myself a little bit. I appreciate the uh, the message. It's it's not one of my, it's not one of the bangers. It's not one of my uh, my favorite ones that really gets my blood moving. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, rediscovering it. Um, it's it's musically more interesting than I remember. Um, it's it's lyrically both. Um, even though that's not your department, uh, it's lyrically to me. Uh, both has an important message, but it's also enigmatic in that uh, sort of classic Ian MacKay style, um, to some extent. Mm. Um, yeah, and I appreciate all those things. I th- I think that falls uh, at a three for me as well. Cool. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think you about pegged it right there. I would just add that uh, they have songs that are um, where the tune is more memorable. The lyrical mm-hmm. tune that's carried is more memorable, uh, and they have songs that. Uh, have I like dynamics in songs a lot? Yeah, and just the to arrangement of the, just to get a baseline for your preference. Like, what's an example of a Fugazi song that you'd rate five stars? What What's your favorite stuff? Oh, yeah, I, oh, I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna answer that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because it would, uh, it would take too long. I would have to go over. It would probably take me several hours to go over some of their songs and just think, okay, well, this one was pretty good, but you know that. Uh, this one's really good too and this one's got you know more of this or more of that but i just as far as characteristics i like dynamics i like uh tuneful lyrics Mm -hmm. um where you remember the the tune that the lyrics put out um like i said i don't care a whole well let me put it this way it's lower on the list what the lyrics actually say it's i wouldn't disregard them but i wouldn't like put them way up there where the lyrics have to mean something absolutely and they have to say it all the way through and they have to be totally consistent all the way through you could you know there are lots of songs that are great songs and they throw a line in that just doesn't seem to fit there or is Mm -hmm. kind of he must have written it when you know he was just couldn't think of anything else so that, that's why I would, you know, wouldn't put it right at five stars, something like that. Hmm. Um, I think their their playing was very good on the thing. I, um, you have nothing to compare it to. Too. I don't. Have you heard any other versions of it? Um, I've heard a couple of live versions, um, but otherwise, just sort of the the official no, release. But not of the from demo. another band. Oh not no, I band I don't I don't think I've been able to find any covers of it. No. Yeah. That's probably because it was a number three, <laughs> you know, and the, you know, the other, uh, you know, it was the other bands probably picked things like Waiting Room or something like that. Not that Waiting Room is one of my absolute favorites, but it it does fall into the more uh, memorable songs. Oh, I, I would bet my life savings it's the most covered Fugazi song out there for sure. Yeah, yeah, or... Um, what was the other one? Ian just played me. He showed me on his laptop some. Uh, I'm so tired. Yeah, um, the, it's from the instrument album, right? Uh, there was a whole bunch of people that did that song, which has a wonderful little melody. It does. A very, 
and it's very folksy, um, but it just, it, it sits with you and it, it sort of pokes you and say, hey, listen to me. <laughs> I've never been inspired to look up covers, but um, yeah, I think I'll take a deep dive on YouTube after this. That sounds very interesting. Yeah, there's, there's one woman who plays a ukulele to it and it sounds great. I'm into that. Yeah, and it's, I think there's probably another about another 25 others that do it, too. You know, YouTube, everybody's copying someone else. <laughs> well, that's the whole history of music, really. Right. Right. right, exactly. But YouTube even makes it more so, I think. But yeah. anyway, but you're right. Uh, that is the history of music. I know when um, the, the Foo Fighters were out at the studio a few years back, uh, Dave Grohl asked me, uh, you know, what do you think about... You know, artists borrowing from other artists, and I said, you know, man, you know, that 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 happens all the time. I mean, I I love it, and I I I engage in it all the time. Matter of fact, Dave, if you're walking down the hallway and you're humming something, that may end up in one of my songs. <laughs> so I mean, I have I'm just shameless as far as uh, using other stuff or using techniques. I mean, people do that. This is the arts where, you know, if you, if a painter uses red paint, another painter may use red paint a little bit better. And the next painter may use red paint even better. And, you know, it just goes on and on. You can pull off pieces like you can from a piece of bread and use that for your bread if you want to start another one. It just really, it's great in that respect. I love it. I love it. I love different, I love hearing how people use uh, different other songs for their songs too. I think it's wonderful. I might have to use that bread metaphor in the next song I write, so uh, I'll be taking that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> take the yeast. <laughs> so, uh, all right. Well, let's just uh, do some plugs. Where can listeners reach you um, if you want to uh, take a second to promote Inner Ear um, or anything else coming up that you might want to plug, recent bands you've recorded that made an impression on you, whatever. Sure. sure. Well, once this get, uh, we, they can contact us, well, they can listen to us on myself and Alex Vidalis have a radio show, which is now archival at the moment because we can't go into the studio. It's called Stagecraft. Stagecraft, and it deals with performance of any type, uh, music, comedic, uh, acting. Uh, we've had uh, anyone who gets up on stage who has something to offer. We uh, bring them on the show and say, hey, you know, share some of your tricks with us. Uh, it's called Stagecraft. It's uh, on WERA-FM, the show itself. It was live until this uh, virus hit. Hmm. Um, also, once things get going in Northern Virginia, I'm at the Hard Times Cafe open mic hmm. every Tuesday night at nine o'clock. And they could, I just, I help out with the sound there. Is that the place that has the excellent chili? It has excellent chili. I remember yes. that well. Great chili, great chili, great beer. And yeah, and every Tuesday night, um, I know the owner, the owner I played in the band with uh, for a while, for a long while about 20 years or so and um there's that uh i do solo playing myself all around town and in the area um they can check me out on facebook just my name don zantera their inner ears on facebook too inner ear studio 
Um, but um, I usually don't put too much on that. I usually put it right on my name, on Don Zentera. And also I play with um, uh, um, a drummer friend of mine, Gary Smith, um, as a duo, guitar and drums. And we're going to be playing on the Outer Banks of North Carolina this summer if things change. Um, change being that people can get together in bars and taverns. <laughs> Um, and also, I'm playing, if that is enough, I'm playing with a group called Under Heaven that was around in around 1982, 83, uh, with some of the members of um, um, Howard Wolfing was a journalist in the area. Mark Chickling was in half Japanese. Uh, so we've, we're, it's a, a bunch of really, really great performers, much better than I am. Uh, but we're just playing around town as a four-piece group, too, once, once, once again, once the bars and taverns uh, open up. So that pretty much does that, and I run a recording studio called Inner Ear Studio. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a very busy man, uh, but you've been a most uh, generous guest with your time. And, you know, of course, if you ever want to come back on the show later down the line, if you have a song that you're very interested in uh, talking about, I would be, of course, honored to have you back. Well, um, thank you, Ian. Thanks very much. So You're very kind. You're welcome. And uh, as for me, listeners, you can reach me at fugaziA2Z at gmail.com. And you can also join the Facebook group, The Alphabetical Fugazi. Um, talk about this song. Maybe you have more of an involved uh, interpretation of it than I did. Um, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode when uh, myself and a guest will be discussing arguments. Until then, keep your eyes open. This is my last picture!